0: Welcome to the Oral Traditions Show on WCRX FM. I'm Erin McCarthy, Associate Professor of History at Columbia College Chicago. In this episode, nine students from the 2019 and 2020 Oral Traditions classes at Columbia will present stories crossing cultures and generations to share and preserve. This is Oral Traditions. At 16, Bracel Martinez's father left a little town in Mexico for the United States to pursue his American dream. This is his story.
1: My father was born in a small but beautiful town of Los Cerritos in Tepehuanes, Durango, Mexico. From a young age, my dad always knew that once he turned 16, coming to the United States to work was the next move. With little to no money, he managed to make $6 last week, face life-threatening obstacles like being in the trunk of a car with four other people, trying not to make a sound for hours on end, avoiding immigration by staying in on the weekends working for only 2.90 the hour, leading him to live in a small apartment with six other people in order to make ends meet.
2: Para poder alcanzar, tenemos que mantener allá la familia también en México. Mandarles allá y luego aquí también mantenerse uno y...
1: And to save enough money to send back home to his parents. But he did all this in order to achieve his American dream.
2: Y veníamos pues queriendo trabajar y queriendo trabajar para, para mandar dinero para la casa. Allá había mucha
1: Although leaving home at the age of 16 was tough because all he knew was his parents and his small town, the thought of being able to come back home with money to help others and the satisfaction of knowing that he was making his parents proud and helping them was all the motivation that he needed to stay and work hard in the United States for four years straight. The American dream that he had when he first got to America has surpassed his wildest dreams. Not only was he able to help his family, allow his wife to plan the wedding of her dreams with his own money, but he was also able to provide a home in the United States for his future children. Even if it wasn't all that glamorous, the only thing that mattered was that the whole family was together. Quickly after my brother was born, my dad's American dream had a whole new definition. His dream was for his children to live a better life than he did, to get the education we needed in order to succeed in the United States, and to always remember that working hard will get us where we need to be. He was able to accomplish so much in the United States while working below minimum wage, knowing little to no English, providing for those around him, those thousands of miles away, and himself, creating a foundation for our family so that my brother and I would have the life he always dreamt about, but nothing compared to the feeling he felt the first time he went back home to Mexico. He had enough money to put in my grandfather's bank account, get him a brand new car, help fix the house and always making sure that there was enough food in the house for everyone.
2: Pero cuando yo me sentí satisfecho fue cuando fui la primera vez para México que le tenía mi papá dinero en el banco, le tenía troca ahí en la casa. Le tenía la casa bien arreglada y en la casa nunca faltaba dinero, nunca faltaba comida.
1: My dad's American dream changed throughout the years. From dreaming about coming to America at the age of 16 in order to help his parents, to staying and working even harder to create a foundation for his future family so that my brother and I would never have to go through what he did, to now just being able to keep providing for his growing family, hoping that one day he'll be able to meet all his future grandchildren.
2: Que sean alguien todos, que sean productivos para el país, y que ganen el dinero un poco menos matado que uno, pero tienen que estudiar porque no trabajen como uno, nosotros no, yo 40 años bajo mando de todo y metiéndole bonito porque ver, si lo ven a uno que le saca el trabajo ahorita lo corre. Ya años, no,
1: Growing up I was fortunate enough to be in a family where family dinners were mandatory. We waited for everybody, there was no eating alone and there was especially no eating in rooms. I always thought that this was lame, but now I'm starting to realize that it was something special. It was a time where we would all be together hearing my dad's crazy stories while eating frijoles y arroz, and this was one of them. I never thought that by hearing my dad's story about his journey to America would help me discover why I am the way I am, why I take school seriously, sometimes a little too seriously, why my work ethic is quite impressive, and why I tend to give so much to the people I love. My dad's American dream was never selfish. It was always to benefit others, even those he didn't know yet. My dad was once an illegal immigrant that only had good intentions. He wasn't a drug dealer or a criminal or a rapist.
2: Porque no todos somos iguales. Todos muchos venemos a trabajar, a prosperar en este país y ayudar al país a que prospere también. Porque lo del país este sin el inmigrante no es nada. Pero lo emparejan a uno es lo que unos aguita a veces porque lo emparejan a todos. Sí, ahí vienen muchos, vienen a ver si nomás hacerse vagos, a robar, a matar. Otros vienen huyendo de sus países porque mataron allá o porque tienen crímenes. Pero no todos venimos así. Y es todo por ahora. Se despide quien los aprecia de todos modos porque estamos aquí en los Estados Unidos. Rodolfo Martínez Cáceres.
1: My American dream is to make my parents proud, so that they know that their sacrifices were never taken in vain to use my education to benefit not only myself, but my future family as well. My American dream is to accomplish everything my parents dreamt for me, and then some. And I owe it all to my greatest why, mi familia.
0: Speaking of American dreams, Carly Battellini's great-grandfather came to the U.S. from Italy as a young boy not long after World War I. Carly tells the family's immigration story from the perspective of her grandfather, who was born in Chicago in 1936.
3: I come from a big Italian family, and family is very important to us. And my grandfather is 84 years old, and over the course of my entire life, he shared several different stories with us um, from family to him traveling the world and all of his experiences, and I wanted to tell this story because it's part of my family's heritage, and it's kind of the, also the start of our family over here in the United States, um, and I wanted to tell this story as well because it made me think about and appreciate the life that I have and that I very well might have had a completely different life if my grandfather had not immigrated from Italy to the United States. So here it goes. I did not record my grandfather speaking, but I did write down everything that he said pretty much word for word. So my grandfather's name is Rick. So this is from the perspective of my grandfather, Rick. My grandfather, Angelo, was born in Italy in a little town in the Tuscany region called Colotti, where, if you know, is the town where Pinocchio is from. Growing up, his parents were sharecroppers. They were very poor, so they would send out my grandfather all over Europe, and he sold little porcelain figurines to bring in extra money for the family. He'd be gone three to four months at a time, and when he was only a little boy. Times were so different. When he grew up, he met my grandmother. They moved to the United States, where they had my dad, Leo. He was born in 1909 in Iron Mountain, Michigan, which is in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. When he was a few years old, his mother, my grandmother, took ill, and the doctor recommended that they move to a warm climate. Because of my grandmother's health, my, grand, my dad took the doctor's advice and moved his family back to Italy. When they got back to Italy, World War I broke out, and my grandfather Angelo was drafted into the Italian Army. While he was out at war, my grandmother passed away. So my father and grandfather remained in Italy until the war ended and then decided to immigrate back to the United States. They went back to Michigan for a little while, where my grandfather worked as a baker. There were copper mines in the area where they lived, but they started to close up, so there was very little work. He decided to relocate to Chicago. Now, at this time, my father was in his teens, and because he lived in Italy for most of his childhood, he only spoke Italian. He had to learn English all over again. A big struggle for him. Moving to a new country is hard enough. Not knowing the language makes it even more difficult. They decided to move to Chicago because they had relatives who already lived there. When they moved, my grandfather remarried and had my Uncle George. They moved to the north side in an area called Cabrini Green. It was an all-Italian neighborhood at the time. It was about six blocks that ran from North Avenue to Division Street. Once they settled, my grandfather continued work as a baker and did odd jobs along the way as well. They were very poor, had little money to go around, but enough to survive. As my dad grew up, he would work odd jobs to help out with finances. He actually built the subway underground here in Chicago. That was one of the jobs that he had. When he was about 25, he met my mother. They married and had me in 1936. My brother was later born in 1946. We grew up in the same area, Cabrini Green, and we all lived in one house together, a brownstone that had three levels. My grandparents, myself, my brother, and parents, even my Uncle George. We all lived under one roof. We had one bathroom. Not an ideal living situation, but we had each other. The whole neighborhood was like one big family. My dad got into the trucking business when I was growing up. He drove a truck for years and then became a dispatcher. I worked odd jobs like he did when I was old enough. And then when I graduated high school, I joined the Marines. When I came back from deployment, I got a job at the Continental Bank in Chicago where your grandmother worked. I used to play baseball with my friends. And after we met, she would come to our games. I was smitten from the moment I met her. We had our first date in July, and by August, I proposed. We married in 1960 and had your father in 1961. Then came your Aunt Sue in 1963. I worked more odd jobs to support the family. I bought a little diner for a bit. That didn't go so well, so I became a milkman. Then I became a salesman for a coffee company downtown. From there, I started working at Victor, a technology company, as a salesman. I traveled the world selling our product and then worked my way up and ended up buying the company in 1990. I sold off the business, retired in 2003. I was able to have all this, the opportunities and the life that I've lived because of my grandfather and the sacrifices and choices that he made. If he hadn't come back to the United States, I very well might have lived in Italy and not had the opportunities that I did or met your grandfather. It all goes back to that one decision.
0: For Hannah Zopek's family, Christmas Eve is the most important night. She talks about their tradition and shares a family favorite story about how they keep the magic alive.
4: For many, Christmas time is full of some of the best memories of the year. On my mom's side of the family, Christmas Eve is when most of the excitement and festivities happen. My grandparents, who we call Mama and Papa, always have Christmas Eve at their house, and when you walk into that house on this special day, you may see a variety of things. There are kids hopped up on sugary desserts, running and screaming with excitement, adults in the kitchen preparing the next wave of food to be brought out, and others just drinking and catching up. The stars of our family are my four little cousins. Harper, who's 10, Gavin, who's 8, and Beckett, who's 6, are all siblings, while Trey, who is 7, is an only child. These four kids bring more energy and excitement to every occasion than all of the adults combined, but we wouldn't trade it in the world. My brother and I, the only cousins who are in our 20s, now look forward to every year to watching them participate in the same traditions we did as kids. The main tradition we do every year is having Santa come on Christmas Eve night so the kids can open their presents early. After finishing dinner and sitting and chatting at the table for a while, the young ones start to get antsy because they know exactly what's coming, or better, who's coming. As a part of the tradition, the kids go upstairs to mom and papa's bedroom and climb into their giant bed. One or two of the adults follow them up to read a short Christmas story before they all hide under the covers and try not to laugh. While this is happening upstairs, downstairs, the rest of the adults are quietly running to their cars outside to bring in the presents that filled up their trunks. We tell the kids, you need to pretend you're sleeping or Santa will see you're awake and skip our house. After trying to get them to stay quiet, which they never do, They finally hear what they've been waiting for, their go signal. A jingle bell rings and a ho, 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 which belongs to Papa. They come running down the stairs to see the front room floor piled with presents just for them. And all the adults look at them and say, oh my gosh, he was just here, you missed him. The kids run to the window to see if they can catch him leaving, because they're always too late. This tradition is so magical and special to be a part of because the kids have so much hope and belief that keeps the Christmas spirit alive. My family has been doing this tradition since my mom was a kid, and her mom's favorite story to tell is when they were just getting the hang of this tradition. My mom and her two sisters were only a little bit older than my cousins now. My mom was at the age where she was just starting to kind of question her belief in Santa. Was he real? Was he not? What's going on? So every other year, the kids raced down to just miss Santa, but this year was different. My mom came down the stairs to catch Santa in the act. She came downstairs to find a chubby man dressed in Santa's bright red suit along with this white beard who was unloading presents underneath the tree for them. She said she ran up to him and asked him to help with the presents, and she was just so honored and excited that she met the Santa and was helping him. When you hear this story, it's such a nice, sweet thought and memory to have about a little girl having her faith in Santa and Christmas restored. However, the story comes along with a photograph of my uncle Danny who was dressed up as Santa that night and he looked absolutely ridiculous. He was wearing red corduroys, a black t-shirt that had a pillow stuffed inside to make him look chubby. And he literally had cotton balls glued all over his face to make it look like a beard. You see this picture and think, How in the world could she believe this was actually Santa? But I think that just proves how much hope lies within kids and how much these traditions mean to them.
0: Choosing to convert to a religion can be a defining moment in someone's life. Hinda Akal chronicles the stories of Lizzie and Julian, two people with very different backgrounds, who both made the choice to convert to Islam.
5: My name is Hinda Akel. I am 23 years old and I am Palestinian. I was born and raised Muslim. My Islamic faith is a big part of who I am. As a kid, I learned that anyone can convert to Islam no matter the race, ethnicity, and gender. One day, one of my Muslim friends introduced me to a girl named Lizzie. She converted to Islam a couple years ago. Her story with Islam was so inspiring. I asked Lizzie if I could interview her to share her story with more people, and she was so excited. Then I met Julian. He is a sheikh, which is like a priest, but for a mosque in the west side of Chicago. I met him with my dad. I found out he was a Muslim convert as well, and I asked him to share his story with me. You will hear the stories of Lizzie Creek and Julian Jihad Rahim in their amazing journey to Islam. My name is Lizzie Creek. I am 22 years old and white. I was so drawn to Islam that I would say, Man, I wish I could be both Muslim and Catholic. Of course, I knew that wasn't possible. My junior year, I had a lot of conversations with one of my online friends, and my sister was present. I just kept researching and I had a pull towards Islam. I was really scared to acknowledge that Jesus wasn't God because I grew up Catholic. My senior year, I decided to convert to Islam in February. There has never been a better feeling. My sister recently came up to me saying, I think I'm going to convert to Islam. It was so cool. I recently wore a hijab. I moved to Chicago my freshman year. That was when I met Adij. It was nice because I only knew my two male online friends and I wanted to meet a Muslim woman. I did my Shahada in Orland Park Mosque. Adij has been the person, especially in the beginning, that has helped me a lot. She has prayed with me. Taught me how to pray and has been the best. Adige and her family have been super nice to me. It started as a fight over marshmallows with my mom. So I told her, mom, I can't eat those. They contain pork products in them. She was like, why are you in a crazy religion that you can't eat marshmallows? She didn't know there were halal marshmallows at first. My mom made me feel weird. She thought you had to be Arab in order to be Muslim. My mom has come around with it. Now my grandparents... They're really Catholic and problematic. They seem accepting of things, but there was a time when there was pork on the table that I didn't eat. My grandpa goes, are you in some cult? I didn't want backlash when I wore hijab. In the end, it's not about them. I don't answer to them, I answer to God. I have not had any crazy experiences. It is definitely because of the white privilege that I have. Identity to me, it's not like I'm proud of being an American nor am I patriotic. I know I have an ability to use my voice in some way, I feel like in Chicago, I have a safety bubble. Going home in Iowa, I know how people think and that's when it gets very tricky. That's where I feel like I will have to speak out against things. My name is Sheikh Julian Jihad Abdurrahim. I am 58 years old and African American. My occupation at the moment is laid off, but I have been working with a human rights organization in the housing department. I was born and raised Christian from Miami, Florida. I have been in Chicago for 35 years. I was one way and I ended up another way. My story is a common story amongst African-American youth on the streets. I was incarcerated and in that incarceration, I accepted Islam. I've been Muslim for about 30 years. The trauma was these streets. I came from the streets. In the midst of my incarceration, I met somebody that I respected a lot that introduced me to Islam. I knew what was going on out here that Islam was a good fit for me. My family who was in Florida was very accepting. My father's side is Catholic, my mother, was another denomination of Christian. Everything has been pretty smooth since I've been Muslim. The Shahada was the help. There have been a lot of people on the streets that I made Shahada to, my wife being one. I gave her Shahada. I've also done prison work in the county jail and what I encountered out there and in here, everyone has had a dire situation. Pretty much, that's what I call the Malcolm X story. Most of the people I know are so similar with drugs, robbing, and committing crimes. When they go out in the penitentiary accepting Islam, That's pretty life-changing. I'm from the South Side. You know, it's kind of like Muslims in the inner city we insulate. People, they don't know a lot about Orthodox Islam and the nation of Islam, but they're seeing more and more of our families accepting us. They kind of protect it. I'm expecting the way things are going in America moving forward is unknown. Learning about these two was such an honor. Their stories teach us to follow your own path in life. I hope we can all learn that Through every struggle, there is faith. No matter what you believe in, as long as it makes you happy, then you are doing something right.
0: You're listening to The Oral Tradition Show on WCRX-FM. I'm Professor Erin McCarthy. Charlotte Duff's grandmother is the last of 13 siblings. Here, her grandmother tells the story of what happened to her brothers during World War II and why the song Danny Boy still brings tears to her eyes.
6: So I was born in October, 1935 and war broke out in 1939. So I was four years old when war broke out and uh, when the war was over, in 45, I was 10 years old, so I, I, when I think of my childhood, it's all wartime, really. It must have been, what was that in 39? And short, shortly after that, um, my two oldest brothers were called up for service, and they went to for, for medicals. And the eldest one, uh, Fred, he passed the medical, but the next one, Colin, was found to have tuberculosis. So he went into the hospital, he went into the sanatorium, sanatorium, for 10 months and he, he, he was cured. But he never had to go back into the service then, but Fred did. And Fred was uh, in, serving in India. And they, they were, that's where he was based, and they were fighting in Burma. And he got uh, blown up and he almost died. And he was very lucky because there was a very clever surgeon there who operated on him, and because he'd lost a lot of his uh, intestines and whatever. And uh, so he saved his life, and after a while, he was shipped home to Britain. Uh, my mother's youngest brother. Daniel, Danny, uh, was a, he was a career army. He was a policeman, but then he was able he, he, um, he was a, he was a, an officer, he was a lieutenant. And of course my mother was devoted to him. I think she was about, she was the youngest of the family and I think he was born probably when she was about six. So he was, she, you know, he was her, her companion but from the time he was very little. In 1944, that was the year that my brother was grown up in Burma. He was killed in at Arnhem. It was during the Battle of Arnhem in in Holland. And we don't know exactly um, how he died. We rather think that he was he was um, doing observation in an airplane of the battle and whatever. We think that airplane must have been shot down. And he was buried um, in a huge um, British cemetery called in Nijmegen, which is on the border of Holland and Germany. I've been there. I've seen, I've been there to see his grave. And uh, because my sister lived for many years in Germany after the war, um, most of the family were able to go there and visit that every, especially my mother in that year. She lost, she lost her mother, her brother, two brothers, A mother and two brothers. Freddie was uh, almost killed in Luna. So that was a bad year for them. That's why uh, we have in this, you would know, in your mother's generation, we have a Daniel and a, and a Danielle. It was, it was so, so sad Oh, oh Danny boy. Danny boy, the, type, the, the pipes, the pipes are calling from glen to glen down the mountainside, and uh, yes, so uh, that, that made my mother cry every time she heard that. She would think of uh oh, Danny, favorite.
0: In this next segment, Hallie Newman sits down with Jalen Howard to talk about how music kept him going through the roughest part of his life.
7: First off, would you mind introducing yourself?
8: Yeah, my name is Jalen Howard. I'm 20 years old and I'm born and raised in Peoria, Illinois.
7: When you were younger, how did music affect you?
8: Uh, music affected me growing up my whole life period because I lived with my grandparents' my entire life. So I was uh, raised in a church and just introduced to their music that, uh, when they were growing up. So I was always uh, listening to Motown funk and that old blues feel to it. So I've just always been surrounded with different types of music growing up.
7: When was the first time you felt a deep connection to music and knew that that was what you wanted to pursue?
8: Uh, the first time I uh, felt a deep connection and knew this was something I wanted to do was when I went to Guitar Center uh, and bought my first guitar, when that was January 2nd of 2018. And when I first started playing, I was like, wow, like, this is definitely something I can see myself doing uh, for a life, hopefully. Even though I just picked it up, I knew it was something uh, special about it.
7: Absolutely. What made you buy your first guitar?
8: Uh, what made me buy my first guitar? Uh, so growing up, my life was a little bit rough. Um, my mother passed away when I was two months old. And then on the first day of junior year, my father passed away on the very first day uh, of a sudden heart attack. So uh, that was my way out of dealing with anxiety and depression and just going through uh, like depressive thoughts. And John Mayer's Gravity was a song that was the one that made me go to Guitar Center and buy my first guitar, because that song talks about things in life bringing you down. And obviously having both parents pass away before you're 17 years old is rough on a kid's head. And just that song really motivated me to do something with my life and actually try to pursue something I love doing and love listening to music.
7: Going forward, what opportunities have your talents given you with playing guitar?
8: Oh, yeah. The opportunities I've gotten with my talents uh, playing guitar just blowing up on a social media app called TikTok Uh, and just having a lot of followers from that, just posting guitar videos and singing videos and uh, piano videos. It's just something that's been really cool. And just getting messages from random strangers from all over the world is something I can't even wrap my head over. And it's just been really cool. I get to talk to a lot of producers, music producers all over the world. So that's really cool. And just getting them to see my videos and just let them hear my music is just something that I can't even, like, fathom. And it's just a really great feeling.
7: I guess you kind of answered this, but if there's anything more specific, when was the time you needed music the most?
8: Uh, the time I needed music the most was when my dad passed away on the first day of junior year. I was just re- in a really deep, depressive state of mind, and I wasn't doing well, but um, I just kept a smile on it, uh, on my face and just tried to keep going and keep doing school and, like, sports and stuff and let everybody know that I was fine. Because just growing up, I've, I was considered that strong friend in the friend group. So I didn't want uh, anyone to see me vulnerable, and just music was my way out of dealing with everything.
7: Lastly, what advice would you give to those who are struggling to find the light?
8: Yeah, uh, John Mayer's Gravity talks about uh, things in life bringing you down. And it's one lyric that says, just keep me where the light is. And basically, that was a song lyric that made me not commit suicide. And that just means a lot to me because, you know, it's basically saying to me, uh, bad things won't last forever. And like, you'll get through it no matter what you're going through. And you just got to keep pushing and remember who you're doing it for. And you just got to mainly do it for yourself.
7: And when that light finds you, bask in it. Realize that light has the power to outweigh the darkness.
8: Just keep me where the light is Just keep me where the light is Just keep me where the light is
0: Despite losing her grandparents before she was born, Madison Thornton was still able to feel a connection to them through her great aunt, who passed down their stories and their values.
9: Since I was little, I always felt like there was a piece of me missing. I never had grandparents to watch me grow up, to tell me stories, or to guide me through life. I lost them before I was born, so I was never able to get to know them, and I only learned from who they were, from memories or stories from the people around me. Fortunately, I was blessed with the best Nana I could ever ask for. She is my great aunt on my mom's side and is the closest thing I've ever had to a grandma. She has helped raise my mom, me, my sister, and my cousins, who I would say all turned out to be remarkable women with such strength and compassion. I'm dedicating this audio story to my Nana and to hear from her words, what it means to raise strong, independent women and reflect on my grandma, Cindy, who would have loved being here today.
10: The most important things I think make a strong woman growing up in our family are independence, responsibility, kindness, and caring. Think about others' feelings before you act, good worth ethics, and very important, laughter. Things I remember that guided me through life your grandmother taught me are not to give up. You can do this and always enjoy life, especially dancing and find time for laughter. Can I remember the times these qualities were important to me? The times I can remember, I I could say I felt them, those qualities helped me were when I stood up for myself and divorced my first husband, handling the passing of my mom, losing my best friend, (laughs) sorry, and going on for her. And of course, losing my second husband, which I couldn't have done without your mom. Important things I'm instilling you, for sure, independence, good work ethics, kindness. Oh yes, always find time for fun and laughter. Your grandmother would say today, if she was here, that she's very proud of both of you. You're both beautiful and strong women who will no doubt touch everyone they meet.
9: My nana is someone who I look up to in my life every day. She is someone who I want to strive to be. I remember my mom dropping me off, climbing onto my nana's lap in her favorite leather recliner chair, and watching her favorite cartoons. Everything about her brings me comfort. I wish I wasn't so tall, because then I would do the same thing today. We spend our days together with the family, laughing, and usually it turns into dancing, like she said, even if it's while we cook dinner. We have the most memorable conversations that I know, and I learn from each time we talk. Although we are missing my Grandma Cindy, the stories and wisdom that my Nana retells for her are a blessing. I would give anything to meet her today and tell her how much my Nana has taken such amazing care of me and she doesn't have to worry. We have all turned into such amazing, strong-willed women who have taken on life with great responsibility and remarkable work ethic, sometimes too much. With whatever life brings us, we handle together and we always look for the silver lining to any situation. Everything happens for a reason. And Grandma Cindy? We can do this.
0: Marian Duncan took the opportunity presented to her by her oral traditions class to learn the story of how her grandmother came to the United States from northern Mexico.
9: So I decided to interview my grandma because Even though I live with her and she's a big part of my life and has helped raise me and made me the person I am today, I really don't know much about where she came from or why she came to the United States in the first place. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to sit down with her and ask her these questions to see why she came here and how she ended up here and how she became the person she is today.
11: Nací en la ciudad de Zacatecas, en el norte de México. Estuve ahí hasta los cinco años. Después nos movimos a Saltillo, Coahuila. Allí estuvimos como cuatro años. Después nos movimos al estado de Durango. Allí estuvimos como dos años y ahí nació una de mis hermanas. Después, tenía yo ocho años, movimos a la Ciudad de México. Ahí crecí, ahí ahí me casé, viví en México hasta los 45 años. Que fue cuando ya vine a los Estados Unidos. Una de mis cuñadas me invitó a venir a Estados Unidos. Vine de vacaciones y es cuando conocí a Bob Ridas. Cuando vine a los Estados Unidos era divorciada y me casé con él. Y así pasaron ya. 32 años. Estoy bien, am happy, estoy feliz. Sí, estoy contenta con lo que tengo. Con mi familia. Siempre eh, eh, viviendo en Estados Unidos. Uno tiene este, eh, la posibilidad de. De, de, de viajar, de conocer, tanto de, de Estados Unidos como de otros países.
9: I love my grandma, and I'm glad I got this opportunity to learn a little more about her.
0: In this last segment, Angelica Wazalewski talks to her mom about being a frontline nurse during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic and the stresses of social distancing from your family, making sure you have enough personal protection equipment, and the nagging worry that you might bring the virus home.
12: Hi, Mom. Hi. Um. So uh, can you tell the audience your name and uh, what hospital you work at? and uh, can you also
13: tell us like what type of nurse you are? Hi, my name is Susan. I work at Gottlieb Hospital. I worked at medical surgical unit.
12: Okay. Um, so like, can you tell me how you felt about when the coronavirus started to hit the United States?
13: I was scared. Because that's really, as what they said, that that's really a deadly virus and it's new to us. So I was scared, but I have no choice. How did you feel when you had your patients die on you or did you have any die on you? I didn't have any, but I have a patient that's critically ill and we have to transfer them to ICU. It's either they're going to be intubated. Or they give like a treatment that we couldn't do it on our floor. That's only this. I see you can handle it. So
9: <laughs>
13: I
12: know that you and I sometimes joke about how you come home and then we scream at each other to like stay six feet apart. But are you sometimes afraid that you might get the virus?
13: Yes, all the time. And I get like sometimes. If I could only not go home, if I could only isolate myself from my family, I, will, I would do it. But I have to come home. Mm-hmm. But as much as possible, I sh- that's why I don't want to be like, I have to get in downstairs and I don't want you to like be like close when they come in. Because I don't want you to get the virus but I don't know. But I've been like changing my clothes when I come home. But who knows if you still have it?
12: Mm-hmm. Um, can you say that you you and your co-workers sometimes like quote unquote steal surgical face masks to bring home? Um, I'm curious if you guys would like get in trouble if they found out.
13: Sometimes <laughs> we no they <didn't. laughs> no we. <laughs> I think, oh, when the beginning is like the mass was like, we're just going to put it in outside, but as the days and weeks goes on, it's eventually the the mass are like missing. Mm-hmm. So now, <laughs> I think people might, or I don't know, p- employees probably is just taking it home because... <laughs> They want to use it. I mean, who doesn't? But usually, it's, I can take a mask, like one, or whatever. Well, anybody can steal it if they want to. Mm -hmm. Because it's just like in the open, so. Mm -hmm. But it shouldn't be because it's only for those people who are in the front liners. we really, really need it.
12: Mm -hmm. To end on a positive note, uh, what do you think you want to do right after whole, the whole pandemic is over.
13: Well, I'll probably celebrate <laughs> because we're like, oh my god, we're I'm already tired of this stuff.
0: Thank you for listening to the Oral Traditions Show. I'm Erin McCarthy, professor of the Oral Traditions class. The Oral Traditions Show is made possible through the collaboration of the Humanities, History, and Social Sciences Department and the Communications Department at Columbia College, Chicago. Thanks to the 2019 and the 2020 Oral Traditions Classes and Zach Cunning, Production Intern for WCRX-FM, for producing this episode. Thanks again for listening to Oral Traditions on WCRX-FM.